If you have a copy of, of God's Word, please open it to Mark chapter 7. Uh, by God's providence, we're able to finish this chapter before uh, Good Friday next week. And uh, just a little bit, a little word about that. Um, Good Friday and Easter Sundays, these are a uh, re- really good opportunity for you to invite any friends and family members that um, you do not know Jesus to come to one of the two services or both if, uh, if the Lord provides the opportunity. Um, we understand that there are some people that come that are not believers, and uh, it's not that we don't preach the gospel uh, on Sundays or on Fridays, but in those particular times, uh, we'll, we'll get a chance to um, you know, really emphasize on repentance and trusting in Jesus Christ. Uh, so if you have any friends or family that you've been ministering to and would like to invite out, um, I think these are one of those, uh, next week is one of those uh, times where people are at least somewhat open to coming uh, because even in the secular world, there's an understanding that this is a, it's almost like Christmas, you know, it was like it was something that Americans uh, do. Uh, so we can leverage that and use it to our advantage um, by inviting people to go and hear the gospel preached. I know Roger and uh, Paige are going to deliver some you know, amazing sermons, so, and it's a really good time for people to hear uh, the gospel. So that's just a little uh, word about next Friday. Uh, I believe it starts at 7.30, so if you come a little early, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, it's a time to just um, not only to be uh, encouraged by as believers, but also an opportunity to evangelize the loss. So if you have Bibles, please open to Mark chapter 7. We're going to go from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. I'll read the text and we'll pray, and then we'll go into the word. Verse 24 of chapter 7. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophesian race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. <clears throat> he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take ch- the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumb. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Within the region of, the, of Decapolis, they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put, and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched the tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven, with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephpathra, and be open. That is, be open. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, to, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. 
Lord God, as we look at your word and the life of your son, may we be moved by his compassion towards those that are hurting. Lord, may we see in uh, your son just a deep love that he has for those that seek after him, those that are in a wretched state and understand their need of salvation. And Lord, thank you for um, saving all of us here and saving those that, um, and throughout history, the Gentiles and those that the world uh, will find lowly, Lord, you've brought them into saving faith. I pray that this will compel us to go and win people to Christ and to proclaim the goodness of the gospel, Lord. Lord, be with us this evening. Give us strength and, and attentiveness so, you can, uh, so that we can learn more about you and be conformed to the image of your son. In your son's precious name, amen. We understand in scripture that the fall created pain. That, through, that ever since Genesis chapter 3, life has become more complicated and filled with disease, discouragements, and death. And as time progressed in history, uh, God and his kindness and grace have, um, in one way or another, pr- uh, preserved humankind. Um, we see it there's throughout history that um, people will discover things like medicine and ways in which people can be alleviated uh, from their pain. And we know, if you just kind of just look through church history, that um, there was something unique about the church and that they were people that cared for those that were physically afflicted. Uh, the church, uh, for the longest time, were the only people that understood that man was made in the image of God and therefore other people need to be cared for. Um, that the people should not be left, uh, people that are sick, people that are hurt, um, a tangible way in which you can show the gospel is to care for those that are in need. And we understand that all of these things in history where you see like the Salvation Army or uh, orphanages, they have their roots in Christianity because they are rooted in Jesus Christ. I know that in our circles we tend to it's kind of shy away from those type of things like helping the poor because we tend to believe that um, you know, we're more like Bible heavy. But I think there is a disconnect when there is a lack of understanding of how we need to apply God's word. And when we look at the life of Jesus, especially in this particular section, we see God's compassion toward those that are afflicted, that God has this love for those who are broken. Um, this world, this fallen world, was not meant to have disease and death. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, the, Paul writes how creation groans and longs for that redemption. Even creation itself understands that there is something broken about this world and is longing for that day where everything will be restored. And when we see Jesus' life, he gives glimmers of those restorations. Every time he does a miracle, every time he heals someone, every time he, he raises someone from the dead, it's a glimmer of what that future kingdom is going to be. And as we're going through the book of Mark, this is not the only time he does a miracle, but in these particular, uh, this particular text that we're going over this evening, it is interesting is because it is to Gentiles. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus healed a Gentile. We've, uh, if you've been uh, kind of following along with us in Mark chapter 5, there was the demoniac. And we'll talk a little bit more about him later. But Jesus has a love for people. And we understand that as we were you know, going, walking through this text, um, remember that in chapter 6, 
that Jesus and his disciples wanted to take a break. They were doing a whole bunch of ministry. They were teaching. They were healing people. They were doing all these miracles. And Jesus wanted to take his disciples for a rest, a time where they can get away to be, to just get, get, just get, um, just get some rest and some rejuvenation. And, but then they were intercepted by a, like a large crowd of people in chapter 6, verse 33 to 44. They, they fed the 5,000. And afterward, Jesus sends them away, and then the storm comes in, and they're paddling throughout the night, and Jesus walks in water and stops the storm. And it just seems like time and time, uh, they, were, they haven't had a chance to have their break. Right? In chapter 7, the, they were uh, confronted by the Pharisees and uh, the scribes, and he talks to them, Jesus rebukes them and corrects their thinking. And then from chapter 7, verse 14 to 23, uh, the disciples, if you could just imagine how exhausted they are, heard this parable that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, and they, they wanted to understand what hap- how, why, where does evil come from. And Jesus explains it's not the things that you do or things that touches you that makes you unclean, but rather evil stems from the heart. So now we continue on this narrative, and this is, again, this is, the disciples are exhausted, but yet, and so is Jesus, and yet they're here, and they're moving along from uh, place to place and winning people to Christ. But at this particular point, it is fascinating to note that Jesus has entered a place where it's primarily Gentiles. Look at verse 24. Now Jesus stood up and went away from there to the region of Tyre, and when he had entered a house, he was wanting no more, he was wanting no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. Yeah, this is right after the fact that the, the religious leaders were trying to rebuke Jesus for uh, things that, try cont- that contaminate you, the things that outside or things that uh, you do, these religious things that they, they fail to do. The disciples are, Jesus telling everyone that what, where true evil and wickedness come from is from within. It has nothing to do with where you're located. It's not, it has nothing to do with where you're, uh, what you do, what you don't do, what you eat, none of that. So you can imagine what it's like for the disciples to learn this and have it to be tested. Because Jesus is now entering Gentile territory. It's like, do you believe what I'm saying? Do you believe that sin comes from within and evil comes from within? Now they're going to a place where they're just surrounded with people that in the Jewish mind would be defiled. And we see this, this love that Jesus has. He's going out to these places, yes, to give, hopefully give the disciples rest, but also to test the disciples to show them that these people, these Gentiles, they have a greater faith than even some of the Jewish leaders. The people who, who should know the truth, these are the ones that reject God, while Jesus is ministering to those that are, in the eyes of the religious leader, undefiled and unworthy. But yet Jesus, in his kindness and his goodness, chooses to minister to the Gentiles, and so this is how sometimes the Lord works. The Lord will often save those that are completely unexpected. And you have to understand that the 12 disciples experiencing this, this is not something that they were used to. They are stretched in a lot of ways, seeing and being in places where, where they know, like, this is where Gentiles dwell. This is where we're, we're far away from where, uh, our, our comfort zone here. Because so it says that Jesus stood up to the region and went to Tyre. And Tyre is a place where all the Gentiles were. Uh, it's Gentile territory. It takes two or three days to walk from where they were earlier in uh, chapter 7. This is a very Greek region. And if you entire here, it's, it's, it's the same Tyre back in the Old Testament where, uh, in, um, where there was a Dagon, you know, the, that, like that 
Starbucks character, you know, the, the fish, half man, half fish god. That's where it was from. Um, that's the region where they worshiped this, uh, this Dagon, this, this um, you know, idol. And Jesus is there. He's breaking away from all the Jewish laws and, and even like territorial things. He's, he's really at the furthest point where the Jews are willing to follow him. But the disciples are willing to follow him to a place where they will see Jesus healing individuals that have a tremendous amount of faith. Now, they went away, and it's possible that Jesus took the disciples uh, alone for more training, some tutoring time, just some more ministering. He, he knows that these uh, disciples are tired and exhausted from the crowd, and he's still ministering to the individuals. Again, this is a lesson for all of us that ministry is going to be taxing to us. Ministry is going to be exhausting. Ministry is going to be tiresome. But we understand that ministry is worth it because of what ministry is supposed to be. Ministry is not something that Christians just do for the sake of doing. Rather, ministry is something that we do because we know it glorifies God. It builds up one another. It evangelizes the lost. And Paul understood that ministry is difficult. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul writes that, uh, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 to uh, 29. Paul writes, are, the, are they servants of Christ? I speak of insane. I'm, I, I'm more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with the rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers of the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, though many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is daily presence of me concern for all the churches. And you know, Paul understands ministry is difficult. It takes time, and he uh, Paul modeled after Jesus, and Jesus is example for all of us. That yes, even in times where there is extreme difficulty and exhaustion, that Jesus identifies with us. He, he understands what that's like, but even in those very tired state, Jesus cared more about the glory of God than he does his own comfort. Ministry, as tiring as it is, is worth it because it shows others just a picture of our God. And it says here that when Jesus went uh, at the end of verse 24, yet he could not uh, escape notice. Obviously, the Gentiles, they're aware of him. They were probably hearing that Jesus is in the area, and the whole crowd comes again. Verse 25, but after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. This lady had a, had a great need, and that is that there was some demonic activity that was going on, and... Uh, and it just so happens that Jesus is around. And she got, tells them to heal him. He, he, she bows down to him immediately. And this word, unclean spirits, the implication was that this demon was on this little girl, and the age could be basically 14 and below. Um, for, it doesn't explain how, but somehow this little girl was demonically possessed 
And the idea of an unclean spirit is, is it usually, it's, it's usually some demon that does something like immoral. Like it, it's, it's, this, this girl was possessed. It was doing things that's sinful and evil. And his mom, this desperate mom, who's in the region of Dagon, probably tried everything under the sun to try to get her daughter to be freed from this demon. And she hears about Jesus Christ, and she goes, out of desperation, bows down to him. He says, fell at his feet. This is an act of worship here. She trusted in Jesus Christ, and she knows that these idols of her days were not helpful, and they were not real. So her response is that there's this trust, and he acknowledges Jesus for who he is. And again, this broke all religious norms, because Jewish people were not supposed to be around Gentiles. Notice in verse 26, now the, now the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician descent, and she kept asking him to cast a demon out of her daughter. These are descriptions of her. You know, Jesus, uh, Jesus was uh, speaking to a woman, which is strange, and you'll see, I mean, when Pastor Henry was going through the book of Luke, he explained how uh, that in the book of Luke, you see uh, how women are really prominent in different roles, whether they are people like Mary and Elizabeth, but there's also a sense in which women are the ones being healed. And at the time, women uh, were not treated and not cared for. But yet Mark decides to write this. And he, I think he's writing so that the readers know that the, the, the Lord cares for Gentiles, which is really the primary audience here. Jesus has this love for this woman who was a Greek um, or Gentile. And again, it's supposed to be encouragement to the readers. It says that she has she is a Syrophoenician descent. That means that um, I think the NASB uses the word uh, Syrophoenician race. And what is particular about this is that this particular race is a descendant of the Canaanites. These were the people that were enemies of God back in the Old Testament. Somehow, uh, some of them ex- uh, um, survived. There was supposed to be this um, killing of all those that are Canaanites. This one in particular, uh, this one line survived, and she was here. So from the Jewish mindset, this person is the worst of the worst. It's the lowly of low because of, the, of their religious, or because of their social background, because of their gender, because of everything. But yet Jesus has this care for her. And it says that, and she kept asking him to cast a demon out of her. This word kept asking, it's ongoing. It's this constant pleading. And she, was, and she did not stop. She was praying in a lot of ways, begging the Lord to cast this demon out. You know, sometimes when we think about our prayers and our petitions to the Lord, sometimes the Lord can be silent. Like he doesn't answer our prayers right away. We could be pleading and pleading. And the question is, why doesn't God answer immediately? I think sometimes, like God will always answer. That's just the objective reality. It may not be when, when we want it or how, or the, or the outcome may not be what we'd like. But sometimes the Lord is silent. It's because it tests our faith. It, it shows us, do we really trust him? Uh, because it's not just... You know, God is not some sort of genie that we go to. God in his providence will answer our prayers according to his will. And this lady here was pleading, and, and, and Jesus was silent. She, was, she had faith in Jesus, and she was pleading with him that, uh, that, that he would cast this demon out. 
And you look at 27, and he was saying to her, uh, actually, uh, yeah, and he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, there are some, I think uh, we can look at this, and there's a little jump here in, in terms of the narrative, because Matthew chapter 15 gives us a little bit more about what, what happened. Because in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, it describes that, and a Canaanite woman, this is the same lady, from that region came out and began to cry out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is, cruel, is cruelly demon-possessed. And in verse 23, but he did not answer a word. But his disciples came and implored him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. And it seems rude, right? Like Jesus heard her, but yet he walked. He, just, he, he chose not to respond right away. And the disciples were telling her to stop because it's drawing a bigger crowd. Now, the question, again, is why didn't Jesus answer? And I think Jesus chose not to answer because I think he's trying to teach the crowd what humility looks like. Because she's going to acknowledge things about Jesus that the disciples sometimes struggle with and that the Gentiles have, have no clue the significance. And he says in um, verse 24, Matthew 15, but he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, Sorry, when you go back, it says that, have mercy with me, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demonically possessed. So she understands something about him, that God, Jesus Christ, is one that can give mercy. She calls him Lord and son of David. She has a lot of Old Testament theology, and, he's, and she's acknowledging Jesus as all of these things. And, her, and she tells him, he could flip back to Mark 7, and Jesus', Jesus response to her was that, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good for children's bread. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to, to dogs. Now, again, that sounds offensive because the word dog, and that this is the reality, he calls her a dog. Now, understand that this is, although it sounds offensive, it's not nearly as bad as you might think because there are, the word dog is used in two different ways. In Philippians, how about beware the dogs? That's like the like basically like the rodent type dogs in the olden days. It's like, you know, rat, uh, rabbit dogs or dogs that are just um, untamed. This dog here is more like domesticated. You know, we understand in San Francisco we have dogs that are like we call family members. That's kind of what the, uh, the, the word that Jesus is using or this, what this lady is here using and what Jesus is saying is that, you know, there are, uh, this is like a family pet, someone that is cared for. And the, and the evidence of that is it's that the dog is in the house. So he said, he said like, uh, let the children be satisfied first, and then the uh, dogs. Now, what does it mean when he said, let the children be satisfied? Because you understand that Jesus, and throughout the Old Testament, all the way to the New, it was always intended that God uses specific people to win others to Christ. All, throughout the Old Testament, God told Israel to be faithful to him, and when they're faithful to him, the, the whole world, the Gentile world, will know that Jesus, or that Yahweh, is the one true God. Obviously, they failed, and even Jesus, in the time of, when he was ministering, he was trying to tell the Jewish people that salvation is, is, is before you, and he was supposed to use them as a means to win the Gentiles. This does not mean that the Gentiles did not have, uh, it was not part of God's redemptive plan, but it just means that God was supposed to use the children first. So this idea here that he used to, uh, be, let the children be satisfied first, and it's not to say don't care about anyone else, it's just that this would be this parable here that the, the people that first were supposed to receive salvation were the Jews. 
And yet, look at her response. She doesn't fight back. She acknowledges things. She said, but she answered, said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She understands that she doesn't deserve God's mercy. She understands she doesn't deserve anything. She doesn't talk about, she isn't offended by the fact that she's known as this dog here. She understands that even those dogs, those house pets, this little puppy, they get to feed on the children's crumb. She doesn't deny or challenge God's will, but she knows she deserves nothing. She has nothing to offer, and she deserves nothing. Verse 29, and he said to her, because of this answer, the demon has gone out of you. Again, Jesus didn't even see the little, uh, didn't see this as a challenge, but he sees this as a faith. And I think that's why Jesus didn't answer right away, because he wanted other people to see this. He wanted other people to see what it, what it takes to be saved. What it takes to have genuine salvation and faith is that there has to be humility. And I think the narrative doesn't say it, but I do believe that the disciples have to follow her to know what happens. Because in verse 30, and going back to her home, she found a child lying on the bed, the demon having left. So, again, just imagine Peter and the other disciples, you know, Jesus saying this, and they probably went and tried to find out, is this true? And then obviously, she was healed. And there's this, this unique thing about Jesus that he healed this lady with his, because of her faith, but it was just, he just spoke. He didn't have to go anywhere. And he's done that before, he'll do it again. And there's times where he would be in close proximity to heal someone, other times he'd be in distance. But all this is to show that Jesus' words will, will happen exactly. Everything he'll say will come to pass. Now, um, we see here just the compassion of our Lord, that he loves people and he will always um, give common grace to those that are righteous and the unrighteous. We hope, and I hope, and I just reading the text, I get the sense that one day in heaven we will see this lady this lady that was so desperate and humble about everything <clears throat> and understood that she needed a savior. And understand that every time when Jesus heals someone, in a lot of ways, it's supposed to illustrate what salvation is like. You are dead and desperate and destitute. You have no hope, but yet the only one that can save you is Jesus Christ. And that's why he did those miracles, to point to the reality that he is the Messiah, but also is, will be like an illustration for other people what having a new life looks like. Now we see another character that Jesus heals. Look at verse 31. And again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. Now this isn't the first time, because and again he went out from the region. I mean, he left that place, but he's now at this place called the Decapolis. And if you remember back in chapter 5 of Mark, Jesus heals this demoniac. In chapter 5, verse 20, oh, sorry, verse 19, said, and he did not let him, this, this, the guy that was healed from demonic possession, went to follow Jesus. And Jesus commands him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. So this person here, this, this formerly Demon, demonically possessed person is, stays and goes back to Decapolis. He tells people about Jesus, and now there's a swarm of people that heard about this. And now Jesus returned, and they think, great, I'm can, I could get healed now. Everywhere he went, people wanted to see Jesus. Jesus brought his disciples to the spot where, to, to win the Gentiles here. 
Jesus didn't go to see Galilee. If you look at a map, you can kind of see that he kind of went almost like a circle. Uh, he went around and took this long journey, and I think it was intended to show that Jesus has this love for the Gentiles. Verse, seven, uh, verse 32, and they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. And notice that this individual was brought. There's a plurality of people. Many people brought this one person, and this person was disabled, and um, it doesn't say, but I just know just by just, you know, living life that sometimes it is very difficult to care for someone that's disabled. It is very difficult to deal with someone that is disabled. Some people have this, uh, they could be wanting this person to see Jesus because then they don't have to take care of him anymore. Others probably will just, are just so tired and exhausted that they want him to get healed so life can be easier. Some could be compassionate for him, yes, and others could just be exhausted. Regardless of the case, we just see Jesus' compassion towards this individual. This is that he was brought there, he was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And there's a sense in which this person, you know, when I read it, you, you know that he gets healed and he was able to speak again. It's implied then that he, he at one point was able to listen, he was able to speak, but for whatever reason, it's, uh, he, he, maybe he got a disease, maybe he got hurt, it doesn't say. But at, one, at some point in his life, he, was, he lost his ability to hear and his ability to speak. And you have to understand, at that time, being deaf was almost akin to like, living a very, I mean, it's very, back then, it was very hard to be disabled, but deaf in particular, because at the time, people didn't know that people are deaf. How does someone that's deaf understand or communicate that? They, they, they weren't able to. And um, you study kind of like how different cultures in the past treated them. Some of them, if they know that they're deaf, they'll just kill them right away. Because they see that we, this, that we, they think that they could, this is hereditary, so we need to kill them. Others think that oh, maybe the parents did some sort of sin. So they, uh, that's why this, uh, their, uh, their child is deaf, because of God's cursing. You can be, you can be mute and you can still get along in life if you can still listen to things. But when you're deaf, you have no clue what people are saying. In fact, of all the senses, being deaf might be the most difficult because you don't know what people are thinking. You don't know where you are. You can't sense the danger. Even someone that's blind, they can hear things. They can listen carefully to social cues. But someone that's deaf, it's very hard for them to understand what's going on around them. So they brought this individual to Jesus and they pleaded with him to lay his hand on him. And this is very, very telling what Jesus is going to do. And this word, uh, this phrase here, this idea of like spoke with him, uh, laid his hand on him, it's the only time in the New Testament. And this man can't hear and can't speak right. But this is a fulfillment of something that, that the Old Testament talks about. Isaiah 35. In Isaiah chapter 35 Isaiah writes this prophecy of this coming Savior, of this restoration of even the Gentiles. Isaiah 35, verse 5, it says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of death will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. We see in this moment, in this time here, Jesus fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy 
that the Savior, a sign of the fact that he's going to uh, heal, uh, that the Messiah is here, is that he's going to have this relationship with Gentiles, which is actually what chapter 35 Isaiah is referring to. He's referring to the fact that even Gentiles will come to, uh, will be healed in this way. And Jesus fulfills that. And for the disciples, they should know what they're seeing. They should see this and, and, and make that connection that, wow, Jesus is fulfilling. We're living something that the prophets, prophets wrote about 700 years before. It is being fulfilled before their eyes. And they're wondering, can Jesus do it? And he does. Verse 33, and Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ear. And after spinning, he touched his tongue. Now, for us as germaphobes, this seems completely gross. But you have to understand that this, even in this act itself, there's this compassion of Christ here. It said Jesus took him aside. Now, they, it was a crowd that brought him, and it was him individually, bringing this uh, deaf and mute person aside. He was isolated apart from everyone. Again, he has this tender-heartedness that's, that you see here. And yet, he, he, he does this thing that just seems so bizarre. So he put his fingers into his ears. Now, it's not like the, you know, the prank that we do where we, like, lick our fingers and, like, you know, put it in someone's ear. I think what Jesus was trying to do, he, he was trying to illustrate, he's trying to do, like, some sort of sign language here. He's trying to explain to him, I'm going to do something to your ear. And he does it. And so he puts his fingers in your ear, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. So, again, this is not a go and do likewise, by the way. This is not like, okay, Jesus did it, I got to do it. I'm going to touch people's ear and spit in their face or in their tongue. But he does this. He heals them. He heals this one person, and it's a visual way to teach this man that he is a savior. And that for the first time in a long time, he was able to hear again. Verse 34, and looking up, uh, up to the heavens with a, with a sigh, he said to him, Epaphatha, and that is be opened. And it's interesting that Jesus is looking up into the heavens, almost like he's looking up to the Lord and uh, having this moment with God to heal this individual for, because this is, he hopes, like, you know, Jesus always does things and will according to the Father. <laughs> but he's a, he, with a great sigh here. <coughs> and I think he sighs because there's this compassion that he has. He sees this person, and he can't help but just be moved. He sighs, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's feeling sorry for this man because of sin, because of living in a fallen world. People are going to be born deaf. People are going to be born mute. People are going to be born blind. People are going to be born disabled. And he has this, he looks at this person that is broken and sick. And he just has compassion for him. And he said to him, Epaphra, that is be opened. And Epaphra, that's in the Greek. Oh, that's, yeah, that's in the Aramaic. And so the Gentile reader have no clue what that word is. And then that's why I said that is be opened. It's almost translated so the people that read understands. And he shows to him that Jesus has this love and compassion for him, and he heals him. Now, I wonder if this is us. When we look at those around us, whether it is in the church or outside the church, those that are different, those that are disabled, those that are afflicted, whether it's a cause of their own decision or not, do we have a compassion for them? Because in San Francisco, it is very easy to be desensitized to caring for those that are afflicted. Now, I understand that you know, there's a social gospel aspect, and I'm not promoting that at all. 
But what I am saying is that as Christians, that it, we should be moved to care for those that are afflicted. And the reason why oftentimes that we don't care for those that are hurting or, or um, you know, just destitute is because we don't see them as being made in the image of God. We don't care for them. We see them as annoyances. But yet Jesus cares for those that the religious leaders have, want to have nothing to do with. And may we be people that follow the example of Christ in caring for those, whether it is in our community, whether it's at home or even in the church, those that are difficult to deal with. Because we exemplify Christ's compassion and kindness when we care for those that others do not love. And now, again, you have to think in your own life. When you see a homeless person, when you see the drug addict, when you see those that are in the city that, that you know, it just seems like it's a choice of their own, do you, what, what happens in your own heart? Are you moved to compassion or do you feel like that person deserves it? And I think how you respond to people that are like that is a reflection of whether or not you are close to Christ or, or away. I've, I just finished the book um, about Charles Spurgeon and how he dealt with the poor. And it was very convicting because he, in this book, he talks about how Spurgeon, he, 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 cared, for the, he cared for those that are poor. He cared for the orphans. He spent all his time and money to invest in both this, like a seminary as well as an orphanage. And he did that because he saw that this is what Christ cared about. He cared about minister, discipleship and caring for those that are uh, believers. He equipped them for ministry. But he also had this love for those that could not help themselves. And in the book, there's this almost like three categories that he says, like, just generalizing. He said, like, there are people that think that as long as you have doctrine, the church is all about just doctrine, and that's all that matters. You learn doctrine and don't do anything in the world. There's some that are in the middle, which is they have doctrine, and they try to apply that in your life, and there are those that always do things but have no doctrine whatsoever. I think our church leans on the first category, which is we care a lot about doctrine, and we may not apply it right away. And Spurgeon, I think he gave a healthy balance. He showed that you can have good doctrine and yet a great love for others. And I think that's, example, that's shown in our Savior. Obviously, Jesus cared about doctrine. Obviously, he cared about truth. But yet, that doesn't negate the fact that he cared for those that are afflicted. He said that this person, his, he began to speak plainly in verse 35. Again, this implies that he was able to talk at one point, and then now he's able to speak again. It was, he was speaking plainly. He was completely healed. I don't know if you felt that earthquake a few days ago, um, but there was an earthquake in San Bruno, and when my whole house was shaking, I was speaking gibberish. I was, like, trying to tell Kelly... Like, oh, we got to get the kids, or, or oh, we got to hide, and where are the babies? And I would try to say all those things. The only came out of my mouth was like, blah, 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 blah. It was just nothing. And then Kelly was looking at me and was like, what are you saying? And I was like, and I just like rolled out of bed and like looked for the kids. And by then, you know, everything stopped shaking. That's not what happened to this individual here. When he was able to speak, he spoke clearly and, and concise and in complete sentences. He was completely healed. Verse 36, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone. Now, I find this to be kind of humorous. Like, you can now talk, but don't tell anyone that you are healed. Um, again, I, I do believe that you need to obey Christ, and if you don't obey Christ, that's sin, 
but you have to give this guy a break because he starts telling one. He's like, hey, are you there? Hey, I can hear you. Like, what? You can talk? Oh, yeah. And he's like, what happened? Oh, this guy, Jesus, healed me. And I could just even imagine, like, this guy encountering the demoniac from Mark chapter 5. It's like, you were healed too? He's like, oh, yeah. But don't tell anyone. And it's like, well, Jesus didn't give me that word. You told me to tell everyone. It's like, okay. Some people had different commands here. And it says, but the more he was ordering them, the more widely they continue to proclaim it. And this word proclaim is the same one in Mark chapter 5 about the demoniac, and that is preaching. They kept telling people about Jesus. They kept preaching that Jesus Christ is the Savior. Christ didn't want, and the question is like, why, right? And we, we understand this because we've heard this, that the reason why Christ did not do this, didn't want people to know, is because he didn't want people to think that's why he came. He did not come primarily to heal them, but really it was for, he came for the cross, he came to die on the cross for their sins. Jesus wanted the people to know that the cross is coming because eventually, eventually he'll tell people to tell everyone. And the evidence of that is that this is written for us to know. Right? Like this is written in the book of Mark so that people will know that Jesus is the Lord. And then, you know, there are four times in Scripture where Jesus tells them not to say anything. In Mark chapter 1, verse 44, chapter 5, verse 43, this passage here. And then later again in Mark chapter 9, verse 9, where he tells people, to, he tells the disciples and people that experienced the miracles to not tell them, to not tell other people about this. In this uh, first three years of Jesus' ministry, there are things that Jesus wanted to, the people not to know until after the fact because the main point of his ministry is not to heal people, at least not yet, but it's primarily to point people to the cross. In verse 37, and they were utterly astonished. Uh, saying, he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Again, this is a direct reference to Isaiah 35, verse 5, the one I read earlier, because it's to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. And just by application, there's a lot of application, but I just want to draw two to mind. Really just one, but I split into two little categories. You have to understand that every time when Jesus heals someone, it's going to point us to the future. And us living in this fallen world, there will be a time where you'll get sick. So every time you, you, you get sick or even time you get better, it should make you long for the future. So really the two application points is, is the same. But it's like every healing should point us to the future hope in Christ. And every pain makes us look forward to the future hope in Christ. The reason why I use this application point because I understand that for us as young people, we may not think about physical pain or, dis, or, or disease as much. I know we went through COVID and everything, but one thing that I try to encourage people in the last several weeks, especially when there's all like flu seasons or cold, is to remind us that every type of healing, it should make us, every time we, got, every time we get better, we should praise the Lord and look forward to the day where we'll be completely uh, healed and restored. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 tells us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Verse 57, um, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that there is a time where, there, where every time we get sick and we get uh, better, it should point us to reality that one day we'll, we'll be completely better. Uh, this body is withering away, and in the future we'll have this glorified body where we will able to, we'll be able to not ever get sick again. But at the same time, when you are sick, when you are in a tremendous, when you do have a cold or a flu or COVID or whatever it may be, 
something even as small as a cold, as big as cancer, understand that as believers that we have a future hope as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 18, Therefore we do not lose heart, but through our outer, though our outer man is a king, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Whether you get better from a sickness or you're, going, or you're feeling sick right now, both cases, it should, we should think about the future glories of, uh, that we have in Christ. As believers, we have the gospel. We are saved because of what Jesus has done. And every time when Jesus heals you or, or, or heals the, the people in the, in the narrative, every time we experience some sort of healing, every time we get some sickness, it should point us to the day that one day we will not have to wrestle with this again. We, uh, we look for a day where there's no more death, there's no more disease, there's no more destruction in the world. And we look forward to that day. And for us as believers, that is, gives us tremendous amount of hope. I know some of you are not believers. I'm sh- I hope none of you are, but I'm sure in a crowd like this, there may be some that are struggling to believe whether or not this Jesus is real. Understand that all the things that's revealed in Scripture is completely accurate. There was a man that was deaf and he was mute that was healed. There was a lady that had a demonically possessed daughter that was healed. All the things that you've read, all the things that we talk about in Scripture has happened in the past, and all the promises that in the future will happen as well. And that is for some of you who do not believe the, bo- the gospel. The Bible doesn't care about what your belief. You still have to give an account to the Lord and what you know about Jesus Christ. Every time you come to church, every time you hear about Jesus, you're held accountable to what you know. And just like the original readers that read this, they now have this knowledge of Jesus Christ, and you have to make a decision today whether or not you are going to worship this God or deny this God. And I hope that you do come to saving faith, that much like the people here that bow down to Jesus, that you too, in your own heart, worship Jesus Christ, because he's the, <coughs> excuse me, he's the only one that can save you, not just in terms of this temporal, physical life, but eternal life as well. And I hope that if you do not have that faith, that you would turn from your sin, place your faith in Jesus Christ, so that you'll be rescued, not from your physical pain, but the eternal judgment that is to come because of our sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word again and reminding us just how compassionate you are. Lord, give us that heart of compassion, knowing that there are those that, um, that need the gospel. The people that are most broken are the ones that might be the most open to the gospel, and maybe we be sensitive to that. May we go beyond just knowing about you and trying to emulate uh, your life in the way that you care for those that are, uh, that are destitute. And Lord, we look at how you heal people and we look at just the miracles as, uh, that you've shown. It really points to the future hope that we have in Christ. Help us and remind us of that, that in light of the greatest distress and disease, we don't need to dread because we have you, Lord because of the future hope. In this body, this world, everything in this life is passing away, but you are preparing a place for us and a body for us that we're able to live in eternity with you without any pain or suffering. Remind us of that hope. Help us love you more because of what's revealed in your word. Thank you for this time that we have in your son's precious name. Amen. All right, thank you for listening. We have some time of discussions. We have two questions. Um, 
Okay, it's not on the screen, it's okay. Uh, yeah, first question, how can I be more compassionate to those who are hurting both in and out of the church? This again, just kind of seeing how Jesus is compassionate to those Gentiles. Uh, and then second, what does sickness teach me about heaven? 